0: following message was recorded live at three strands church we hope it will bless you encourage you and challenge you in your journey of faith we'd love to pray for you or answer any questions you have message us at three contact all right we're going to wrap up this series strong today i hope we're going to take you out into the deep end and uh, you're going to need jesus to help you make it in the ocean here so i hope you're ready to be stretched Stretching is good, whether you're lifting weights, whether you're rehabbing, or whether you're trying to grow spiritually. Almost in all those situations, all the time, your strength is always found in the stretch. And so I hope that you will stretch today. I hope you'll let um, Jesus expand your faith and I hope you'll um, venture out into the deep end of the ocean with us of faith and uh, make some challenged commitments to God today, change some things, go out of here and don't just hear the word, but do what it says. And so um, we're going to wrap up today. The third part of this series, The Hustle. I don't want you to get hustled, so I want you to hear God's truth. I want you to feel God's grace today. I want us to each go out of here and put it into practice. So, Jesus told roughly 32 parables that we have recorded for us. He probably told hundreds, but 32 or so of them we have recorded in the Bible for us. Half of those parables, half of those stories, parables just an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So, Jesus talking about something in everyday life that has a, a hidden meaning about eternity or heaven. And so of of those 32 parables or stories that Jesus told, half of them are about money or stuff. That's pretty overwhelming when you break down the subject matter that Jesus talked about. And so this is an important topic to him. He knew and taught and communicated that there would be nothing that would vie for your heart like finances. And so he talked about it quite a bit. And if you really observe your life, you would probably have to be honest and admit that finances take up a big chunk of your time and your thought. You spend a lot of time thinking about it. You spend a lot of time going after it. You spend a lot of time working for it. You spend a lot of time giving it away, right? So, uh, and so Jesus knew that. And so he, he covered it quite a bit. We're trying to cover it quite a bit as a church. It's easy as a church to shy away from it. It's my least favorite thing to teach about because people in our culture don't like it when you get into their financial business. Is that true? And so I don't really like it. It's uncomfortable for me, but it's a a stretch for me. But that's where the strength is at for our church. And so we're going to keep stretching in that area, keep teaching on it every year, keep looking at different passages from God's Word that talk about it. I shared with you back in week one that I think most financial struggles, concerns, problems you face underneath the surface come back to two things. Anybody remember what either of those were? Anybody? Bueller? What? Discontentment. I brought you a book, Opie. All right. Anybody remember what the other one was? Discontentment. What was it? Boring. This is boring? Oh, worry. Is that what you said? All right. Yeah. I'm not throwing it at you. Gus will shoot me. He'll shoot it. He'd shoot it down. (laughs) Yeah. Discontentment and worry, right? discontentment and worry. And so if you examine all of your financial problems in life, uh, all of your struggles, the things that stress you out about money, they almost always come back to one of these two things. Either you are discontent with what you've got right now or you're worried about what's coming, right? And and almost all and I said in week 1 that almost all of the time these two problems underneath the surface of all of our financial struggles drive us to the real problem with money in our lives, which is debt. They force us into debt. They drive us to take on more debt. Because if I could just get more, then I'd finally be content. And if I could just get more, then I wouldn't have to worry about what's coming. But that's a lie. We've kind of been unpacking that for the last couple weeks. And if you were here last week, we dove into discontentment. And we kind of tackled that one from God's word. And how do you overcome discontentment? And today we're going to dive into the second one here, worry. How do you overcome or defeat financial worry, anxiety in your life? And so maybe you're here today and you think, I've tried. I've tried to stop worrying about money. I've tried as much, everything I can think of to do. I've given all my worries and cares to God because he cares for me. I read that in the Bible, and so I tried that, and it doesn't seem to work. In fact, the more I try to stop worrying about money and finances, the more I seem to worry about it. Well, you're in the right place today. I think God wants to swap out all that worry for peace and give it to you today. And so uh, let's start today in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, the verses will be on the screen. You're always free to follow along in your own Bible or your Bible app if you want. But Ecclesiastes chapter 5, I'm going to read you two verses. Verses 10 and 11 say this. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived besides Jesus, wrote, Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. Now here's how I know for sure that's true. If the doctor walked in the door right now or if you got a phone call, had to step out for a minute from the hospital right now and they told you that your test results just came back in and you only have 15 more minutes to live, there's not one person that would care how much money they had. And so you know that at the end of the day, money is not really what brings your life meaning or happiness. He goes on to say in verse 11, the more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. That's true, right? It's true. So what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? So I want to ask you guys, go back to verse 10 just for a second there. I want to ask you guys, if this is true, if, if you're here today and you're a Christian, now maybe you're not a Christian, you're not interested in following Jesus, you don't believe the Bible is the words of Jesus, but if you are here today, just for a second, I want to just zone in on the people who are here who say they're Christians, right? If you're here today and you say you're a Christian, you say you're following Jesus, you say what his words say are true, and so you believe this is true, that those who love money will never have enough, that it's meaningless to think that wealth will bring you true happiness, if that's you, then I want to just ask you, like, why is it then that I keep thinking I need more and more stuff? Why is it Why is it that I get convinced that I have to spend myself into debt? Why am I motivated to never be satisfied with what I have? Why am I motivated to always want more and more? Why is that? If I really believe this is true, then why do I believe the lie? Now, just in case you missed it, here's the lie we've been talking about for the last two weeks. That more money, more stuff will make me happy. But nowhere in God's word does it say that. God isn't very much interested in how much more you have. He's interested in how you manage what you do have. Now, maybe you're here and you think, well, I don't really believe that. I don't really believe that more money will make me happy. Maybe you fall into one of the other kind of two deviations of this lie and you believe those. Which are, I don't necessarily believe more money will make me happy, but maybe I think more money will make me important. Because we live in a world where like more money kind of makes you important. If somebody gets up to share something and they're a billionaire, you kind of take notice of what they say. If somebody walks into the room and they have a lot of money, they get a little bit more attention in a lot of places, don't they? So maybe you fall into that lie. I need to have more money because that will make me more important. Or maybe you fall into the third deviation of this lie, which is if I just had more money, then I'd be secure. Those are all kind of Three variations of the same lie that we buy, hook, line, and sinker. And the truth is, in God's word, it doesn't only stay quiet on these three things. He actually teaches the exact opposite. That in God's kingdom, more money won't make you happy. In fact, more money tends to bring more sorrow. More money tends to bring more problems. In God's kingdom, more money doesn't make you more important. See the story of the rich man and Lazarus. In God's kingdom, it's all flipped upside down. And the least will be the greatest. And the greatest will be the least. In God's kingdom, having more money doesn't make you more secure. It makes you more susceptible to not trusting God. In God's kingdom, less persecution, not having, going without, tends to make you more reliant on God for your security. It's opposite. But we buy these lies. We believe them. And the truth is, the answer to all those questions I asked, what is it about me if I believe God's word is true? What is it about me that, that motivates me to keep spending myself into debt? And what is it about me that motivates me to think I need more and more? And what is it about me to never be content with what I have? What is it about me? The answer to all those questions and the reason behind why I believe all three deviations of this lie is just one word, and the Bible talks about it ad nauseum. It's the word greed. And it's ironic because whether I'm discontent with what I have or I'm worried about what's coming, the root problem still ends up being greed. And that's weird because like when I'm discontent with what I have, I tend to go into debt and start getting more and more stuff. I spend more and more. And when I'm worried about what's coming, I tend to hoard all the stuff I do have. So on one side, I'm getting rid of a bunch of money. And on the other side, I'm hoarding a bunch of money. And yet the root cause of boast seems to be greed in God's word. The selfish underpinning of greed in my life. Greed's like trying to quench your thirst by drinking salt water. Seems like a good idea. It seems like it's going to work and you do it and then it just gets more and more thirsty. The more you hoard or the more you spend or the more you go into debt or the more stuff you seem to acquire, the more stuff you want and need. I've yet to find the person that has reached a point in their life where they haven't ever wanted anything else. You ever been there? I mean, I can think of all kinds of things I wanted when I was a kid. I got some of those, didn't get some of those. And I still want stuff now. I look at the list of stuff I want now. It's nothing like the list of stuff I wanted when I was a kid. It's not like I made some list when I was seven and I'm spending the rest of my life checking that list off. If I were, my whole house would just be full of like little kid toys. But as I grow up, my list seems to get, you know, bigger, more expensive. I'm I'm never really satisfied. I keep drinking the salt water, but keep getting thirstier for more stuff. That's what greed is. Jesus told this fascinating story about greed. I'm not going to look at the whole story with you. I'll just give you some backstory to it. But it's in Luke chapter 12. And uh, he's teaching and there's this big crowd around him. And as Jesus is teaching, this guy yells out from the crowd. And he says, Teacher, tell my brother to split our dad's inheritance with me, okay? So I don't know, it doesn't tell us exactly what Jesus was teaching about in that moment, probably something unrelated because that's how people kind of come to church or go to like a, it's like they come with their own agenda. They're not really interested in what's being taught. It's like, I got my own problems, you know? And so Jesus is up teaching and this guy yells out, teacher, tell my brother to do the fair right thing. Tell my brother to split our dad's inheritance with me. Now you don't get a lot of information on these two guys, these two brothers. Maybe this is the younger brother, you know, and, uh, and the older brother in that culture kind of got all the inheritance, and so it was like on him to then take care of the rest of the family, and so the younger brother, kind of like, you know, maybe he's upset about that, for, or maybe the older brother, was just, or maybe the other brother was just a jerk, and it kind of swindled him out of the cash, who knows, you know, but for whatever reason, he's like, teacher, tell my brother to give me, split the inheritance with me, he's, he's being selfish, and Jesus could have responded with a lot of things there. I, I feel like Jesus could have been like, hey man, keep keep it down. I'm, I'm busy teaching about some other stuff right now. He didn't say that. He could have said uh, uh, he could have said, hey, handle it for yourself. You know, fight it out. You know, figure it out. And take him to court. You know, something like that. He didn't say that. He could have looked at the other brother if he had been there and been like, hey, he's right, man. You're not being fair. Share sharing is a good thing. I'm Jesus. I I teach that kind of thing a lot. So share. Give your money away to your brother. You know, help him out. You know, give till it hurts. You know, if he wants one of your coats, give him two. If he wants you to walk a mile, go two miles with him. He didn't say any of that either. I want to show you what Jesus' response was in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. This is what he said to the guy. Beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. And I looked at that, and I'm thinking to myself, like, it doesn't sound to me like this dude's being greedy. He didn't say, "Teacher, tell my brother to give me all the money." He didn't say, "Like, teacher, isn't there anything you can do to multiply our father's inheritance for us? Come on, Lord, I'm giving you our two uh, fish and five loaves. Can you multiply it and feed thousands with?" Like, he didn't ask for that. He's just kind of asking for, you know, his fair share, right? Isn't that what it sounds like? Hey, Lord. Hey, teacher. Our father left us this money. Can you tell my brother to split it in half of me? That seems reasonable, doesn't it? And Jesus's response is anything but reassuring to this guy. It's anything but, hey, you're on the right track. Instead, it's like, watch out, dude. Watch out. Greed? It's got all kinds of forms. Be on guard against it. Every single one of them. It's going to creep up over and over and over again. in you're like, sometimes it's going to want to make you just hunker down and keep what you got. Sometimes it's going to want to make you spend stuff you don't have. Sometimes it's going to want to make you do something dishonest and take from somebody else. But be on guard. Your life, the value of it, the, the meaning of it, it isn't calculated by how much stuff you got. Greed. Now, he doesn't stop there. He, he goes on to tell a story, a parable. I'm not going to read you the whole parable, but he goes on to tell this story to explain his point. And then here's the story he tells. He says, there was this farmer, and he was really successful. He brought in all of his crops, and when he harvested all of his crops, it turned out he didn't have enough space for all of his crops. His barns were completely filled. He couldn't sell off anymore. He had too much. And he sat back and he looked at his situation and his conclusion about the situation was not, I should take some of this extra and give it to the poor. Maybe I should take more of what I've produced and give even more of it to Jesus. I'll take it to the temple and give it to the Lord to use it. Maybe he thought, I should go ahead and plant less next year, not work quite as hard. And, and I don't even need all this. So why am I even working this hard on it? He didn't say any of that stuff. He sat back, surveyed the situation. and He said to himself, I know what I'll do next year. I'll have space for all this. I'll tear down my small barns. I'll build bigger barns. And then I'll have room for all my stuff. And then once that's done, then I'll just sit back and enjoy the good life. The easy life, the retired life. I'll be able to sit back and just eat, drink, and be merry. And Jesus says that this guy is a fool. And that that very night, his life would be required of him, that he would die. And then what good would all that stuff do him? What good would all that food bring him once he dies? What good would all those bigger barns be to him then? And then he concludes the whole story by saying the same verse we looked at last, a a version of the same verse we looked at last week. He says, so is a person, so foolish is a person who decides to store up all kinds of riches here on earth, but is not rich in their relationship with God, who has not stored up treasure in heaven. Greed. (laughs) And so I'm left looking at these passages thinking to myself, I'm probably greedy because it can show up in all kinds of forms and I may not even be aware of it. And so what do I do? I, like I, I, I'm with you, Jesus. I should beware. I should guard against it. But, but how? How do I guard against it? So what I want to do today is I want to just give you like two easy steps. How to guard against greed in your life. How to beware like Jesus told us to beware. Here's the first one. You Ready? Exercise self-control. I know this sounds like something everybody would say. It sounds like something you'd tell your kids. Control yourself, you know. Sounds like something Kobe's probably had to say with a newborn in the house, you know. Control yourselves, you know. But it sounds like the thing we'd say, right? But it's hard, isn't it? See, exercising self-control to make that happen, I'm going to have to tell myself no a lot. Because myself, out of control quite a bit. So if I'm going to be self-controlled, I'm going to have to tell myself no often. And so you come into church, and I I see you. I'm like you. I feel like a man avatar. Like, I see you, you know. But uh, you come into church, and you're worshiping, and you're like, you know, take me deeper. And you're like up here singing. you got your hands in the air. You're closing your eyes. You're bellowing out. You're like, anything for you, Jesus. you got tears streaming down your face. You're taking notes during the sermon, and you're worshiping. And you're like, I'd do anything for you, Jesus. I'd sacrifice anything for you, Jesus. I will worship you with all I've got. And then you go out of here and somehow want gets in the way of your worship. I mean, it's absolutely amazing in my life how often want gets in the way of my worship. And everything I said I'd do, and everything I heard from God's word that I knew was true, and everything I committed to be I just throw it right out the window, and I choose want without self-control. That's how I live. I hate it about myself. I don't know how you feel about it. Listen to what God says about it. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28. A person without self-control is like a city with broken down walls. Of course, walls in Bible times were like their defense. So what he's really saying there is a a person without self-control is vulnerable is susceptible to attack, is easily defeated. I don't, I don't know. Maybe you look at your life and you feel like, financially, I get my tail kicked pretty easily. Could it be that we're not exercising self-control, that we're not telling ourselves no often enough, that we're too often replacing our worship with want, and we're controlled by the things we desire instead of the things the Holy Spirit desires. That we live and we move and we exist for what we want instead of what the Holy Spirit wants. Look how Paul writes it in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. He says, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. Sinful nature craves. You can swap that out for what I want. Right? You can swap those three words out if you want for what I want. So I live my life according to the Holy Spirit's guidance. Whatever he wants is what I do. Whatever I want is what I refuse to do. I take what I want, I push it down, I get it out of the way, and I just choose to say no to me and yes to the Holy Spirit. And he goes on and tells us, like, if you decide to follow what you want, your own sinful nature, Cravings, then the results of that are obvious. And he goes on and say the results of that are like all kinds of sexual deviation and 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 you whatever you feel like doing sexually. It's all kinds of of uh, um, like bitterness and jealousy. It's all kinds of selfishness. It's all kinds of destructive life choices and partying and drinking and just doing whatever I feel like doing. Getting greedy, spending my money for myself. But then he ends the chapter by saying, But this is what it looks like if you choose the opposite, if you choose self control, if you follow the Holy Spirit's guide and leading in every area of your life. This is what he says, verses 22 and 23. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Here's what it looks like. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And he ends it with self-control. And so I ask you, are those nine traits what your life looks like? Because if, there's, if they're not, then you're probably doing what you want way more than you're worshiping. You're like, they're hard. I get it. If I was making a list 9 I'd make nine easier things too. But, but they're what it looks like to kill me and live for Christ. And that's what it looks like to be self control Now, here's my definition of self-control. It's not Webster's Dictionary definition of self-control, but it helps me remember it. You ready? Self-control, it's the ability to choose the wise thing over the wanted thing. The ability to choose the wise thing over the wanted thing. Or you might say it's the ability to choose what I want most over what I want now right? And I think so often people who say they're Christians, like they know what the wise thing is. A lot of times people like ask you for advice when you're a pastor. They usually do the opposite of whatever you tell them, but that is a whole other sermon, I guess. But it's like, they'll ask you for advice. And I often think to myself, like, I think you already know. Like you'll listen to them talk and you can tell by like what they're saying. Like they already know what the right answer is. They're kind of looking for somebody to like give them permission to do the wrong thing, you know? And, uh, but it's like, usually we know what the wise thing is, but we just let want get in the way of it. We won't be self-controlled. Some of you who know my story, know that I spent several years selling cars with my life. I was a pretty good car salesman, you know, pretty successful. And, uh, I didn't like totally hate it. The hours aren't very good, you know, but, um, it's not like being a pastor. I like that way more. And so, um, but you guys know that. Some of you know that. And one of the things that they would teach us when you were in like training classes or when we were sitting around like, um, you know, doing workshops and stuff to come and become better salesmen is um, this idea of like total cost. You know, like a, um, uh, camera, camera. I, lost, I lost the phrase in my head, like what we used to call it. Uh, cost of ownership. Yeah, 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 okay. So you, we would have this like, whole class every once in a while on cost of ownership. Cost of ownership versus price of the vehicle, all right? And so the first dealership I worked at, I sold a lot of Highline cars. I sold like Audi and BMW and Porsche. And so you're talking about cost of ownership a lot with some of those vehicles. Uh, second dealership I worked at, we sold a lot of Nissans. Very reliable car. And so you'd also talk about cost of ownership versus initial price. So let me just break it down real quick for you. Cost of ownership versus initial price. If I buy a car and it's $30,000 and you buy a car and it's $20,000, but your car costs you $12,000 more in repairs over the life of the car than my car costs you, who got the better value, right? I'll give you another example. If, if I buy a car and it lasts me for 20 years, and you buy a car and it won't move after five years, who got the better value? See what I'm saying? So we're, we're trying to look. So a lot of times you're selling like a higher line car. You're talking to people about costs of ownership because you're like, yeah, I know you could go out and buy like a little cheapo car better than like cheaper than this one. But are you really getting a better value? Because this one's got a proven track record of running for 300,000 miles on the same motor. And so you're talking about like cost of ownership. This is what self-control is like. It's my ability to look past what looks like the better deal right now and see that there's a better value down the road in the future. You get it? And so I look at my life and I'm like, yeah, that looks like a sweet deal right now, but I know what that's gonna cost me. I know that God says down the road, there's a greater peace and a reward for the wise choice. And so I exercise saying no to myself because I want the greater thing. I want the better thing. I want to give up what looks good for what looks great. I want to choose the wise thing over the wanted thing. Here's the other piece of the puzzle for you. Ready? Elevate your priority. This is what God's going to teach us. I'm going to dig into this one here for a second, but elevate your priority. Look at Matthew chapter 6 verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. I read you the exact same words from Luke's account of this story in week one of this series. But I needed you to hear that verse again, because it's the first verse in a story that Jesus is going to tell. And when you get to Matthew's account of the story... He expands on it and gives us some information Luke didn't get, some additional perspective on what Jesus was teaching there. He says this exact same thing. You can't serve two masters. I want you to see he's talking about the context of money, right, in this story. You can't serve God and be enslaved to money at the same time. You can only have one master at a time. So I ask you today, which master do you serve? Do you serve God or money? Money. Because only one can be your priority. I think a lot of times people would like to think they can like, kind of you know, dip their toe into the Jesus water and be like, well, Jesus is kind of important, but, but this stuff in my life is kind of important too. It doesn't work like that. You only get to have one priority at the top of the list. So do you have stuff or does stuff have you? It's crazy. It's crazy how easily for some of us We surrender our sin to Jesus. Or we surrender our suffering. We're suffering. We're instantly like, oh, Lord, I need help. I need help. I need help. I can't do this alone. I need help. We surrender our suffering. We we surrender our salvation. We're like, I can't get to heaven by myself. Lord, please save me. It's like, but what about our stuff? It's like off limits to Jesus. Yeah, you're good enough to save me. You're good enough to solve my problems. You're good enough to heal my suffering, but you're not good enough to control my stuff. Who is your master? Hmm. And then we try not to worry about that stuff. We try not to worry about not having enough. And then we seem to worry even more about it. Like right now, I'm thinking about a white elephant. Right now, I want you to think about a white elephant in your head. Can you do that for a second? Everybody, picture in your mind's eye a white elephant. Now, stop thinking about a white elephant. Don't think about it, don't think about its trunk. Don't think about it walking. Don't think about like 20 years ago when I was in Africa and one charged at us. It wasn't white. It was just regular colored, but charged at our vehicles like the scaredest I've ever felt in my life. Don't think about it. Don't think about an elephant. Don't picture Dumbo in your head, right? You can't, right? Because the harder you try not to think about something, the more it kind of gets stuck in your head, right? And so you try not to worry about money. You try not to worry about stuff and yet it gets kind of, to where it's all you can think about. And it's amazing how often want keeps me from worship. It's also amazing how often worry keeps me from worship. And I'll sit through a church service and not hear one word that's said. I'll listen to a worship set and couldn't sing one word even in my heart because all I'm thinking about is that problem I got. All I'm thinking about is that worry in my head. That, that, that anxiety that's, like, filling me up inside. It's amazing how worry does that to us. And I thought about it this week, and I thought, I think I could stop worrying. I think I could. I think I could stop worrying about money ever if two things were true. Now, now you guys tell me if you agree with this, okay? I think I could stop, never worry about money again my whole life if two things were true. If I always knew what was coming, Okay? if I always knew what was coming and I was 100% sure that I'd always be ready for whatever it was, (laughs) okay? I think if those two things were true, I'd never worry about money. If it's like, if I always knew what was coming and I always knew I'd be ready for it, right? I mean, is there anybody who would disagree with that? Okay, so why do I worry so much about money? Jesus addresses it the second part of this little story I'm going to share with you. And he does it by asking a series of questions. I'm going to read through it. And I just want to stop on each question as we go and just kind of like ask us about it. You ready? It's in verse 25, Matthew chapter 6. It's where he starts. He says, that is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Remember, he's talking about money and stuff. Can't have two masters, God and money, you know. That's so why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? I don't think there's anybody in the room who would disagree with that. If you had all the food and clothing in the world, but no human contact, would life be fulfilling? If you had all the food and clothing in the world, but no dreams or hopes or future, would life be worth living? Obviously, life is more than clothes and food. It's kind of a rhetorical thing by Jesus. It's obvious that everybody would agree with that. So yeah, I can agree with that, that life is more than just food and clothes. That's one of his kind of logical thoughts behind why I shouldn't worry. Then he says, verse 26, here's some examples. He said, look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Okay, I can believe that I'm more valuable to God than a bird. I mean, after all, when he created everything, he said after he created birds and all the other uh, you know, animals, he looks at them and he's like, they're all good. And then he creates human beings and he's like, they're very good, right? He sent his son as a human, not as a bird. So he must care more about me, right? He let his son die for me. Didn't let his son die for like hyenas and jackals. And His son died for me, right? He must care about me. It seems like he cares about me more. He's offering me eternity in heaven. He's given me a soul and put eternity in my heart. He hasn't given any of that to a lion or a zebra. So it seems like I can buy into this Jesus. He does care for me more than he cares for birds. Okay, I'm with you, on, I'm with you so far then look at verse 27 he says can all of your worries add a single moment to your life I think we'd all agree that's not that that's a rhetorical question too and obviously it can't in fact I think most medical studies would show you that like the more you worry the shorter your life might get actually so so it's like the opposite effect really can't add any days to your life by stressing out and being anxious about it verse 28 and why worry about your clothing look at the lilies of the field lily smith look at the lily smiths of the field Look at the flowers in the field, right? How they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all of his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? And Jesus kind of gets to the root of it. He's like, you obviously don't trust me. If you're worried about not having enough for tomorrow... If you're worried about what you're gonna wear, what you're gonna eat, if you'll have enough, if you if you're gonna make enough, you must not have enough faith. You must not trust me. I mean, I'm taking care of the birds and the flowers. Don't you think I'm gonna have your back too? Do you get it? So there seems to be these two choices. I can either believe the lie that we talked about earlier, or I can trust Jesus. See, I wouldn't worry about money if I knew every single thing that was coming and I could be guaranteed that I'd be ready for it. And I don't know what's coming and I'm not sure if I'll be ready for it, but there is this one person who knows everything that's coming and has promised to give me everything I need. So the real question is, who will I trust? Me who doesn't know what's coming? and isn't sure if I'll have enough? Or the one who seems to somehow take care of everything else on this planet and has promised to take care of me and knows exactly what's coming down the pipe? I elevate my priority, not because I'm crazy, but because I believe that what God says is true. Now listen to how he wraps this paragraph up. Look at verse 31. He says, so don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. You're called to something different, okay? And now I'm going to kind of like, I'm going to pull a phrase out of the next two verses. I'll put it back in a second, I promise. But I want to, because there were no verse numbers when the Bible was written. We added those later so we could find stuff. There were no verse numbers. But I want to show you a part The second part of verse 32 and the second part of verse 33. And he's going to show us what I'm supposed to be elevating my priority here. What I'm supposed to be thinking in my head. Watch. Watch what he says. Your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Isn't that the first thing I needed? Not to worry. I need to know what's coming. Right? And then at the end of verse 33. And he will give you everything you need. You see it? It's what I need to keep in the forefront of my mind. Over, I'm going to probably have to say it to myself in the mirror sometimes because something's going to hit me. I'm going to be like, I didn't see that coming, but he did. He did. I don't think I'm ready for that, but he's ready. You get it? Like I'm going to have to pep talk myself a little bit to remind myself of what Jesus said is true. You say, what's that have to do with elevating your priority? That seems to be just stuff we're supposed to tell ourselves or cheerlead on ourselves. But I left out the phrase in the middle. The phrase that comes in between those two things that God knows everything that's coming and God will give you everything you need to deal with it. The phrase that's in the middle is this ready? But seek first the kingdom of God and live righteously. I got to raise my priority, it can't just be about my kingdom. I make it all about his kingdom. And his guarantee to me is not that trouble won't come. His guarantee to me is not that I won't be hit with this like bomb of stress one day. His guarantee to me is he knows exactly what's coming. And he's got my back no matter what it is. He's not going to leave me high and dry. I shared with you guys last week about a Pew Research survey I looked at that said that the number one financial priority for Christians in America was to provide for their family. That sounds a little noble, I guess, right? I also share with you the second highest financial priority for American Christians was to be able to support the lifestyle they want. That doesn't sound quite as wholesome, right? And I share with you that it sounds like we're getting hustled. Because nowhere in God's word can I find either of those as being the top priority for our money. Anybody have any clue what the sixth most important financial priority is for American Christians? To serve God with their money. We're getting hustled. Let's seek first the kingdom of God. Sixth. All these other things will get added. Oh, he's talking about your life. Give him your time, your attention. Remember the first verse? When he started sharing? It was all about money. You can't serve God and be enslaved to money. Seek first God's kingdom. And all the other things will get added unto you. He knows what's coming. See the litmus test in the Bible. For your devotion to God is your willingness to put him first in every single area of life. And no more is it repeated, no more often is it repeated than in your finances. And so I would just propose to you from God's word over and over again, if Jesus isn't the first place thing in your finances, he's not in first place. It sounds good to say like, well, Jesus is second place. It's not so bad. I love him. Until you realize there's only two places. You're in first and he's in second. So by putting him in any position other than first, you're really putting him in last. So I come back to the same thing I shared with you the first two weeks of the series. Here's God's plan in the Bible for your finances. Give, save, live. In that order, always in that order, never out of order. Give, save, live. I give God at a minimum the first 10% of every dollar I get, whether I earned it or think I earned it, whether somebody gave it to me as a Christmas present, whether I found it on the parking lot. I take it and I give God at least the first 10% of it, maybe more. And then I save something on a regular basis over and over again, recurring. And then I live only on what's left. That's the financial plan that's laid out in the Bible. Everything the Bible has to say about financial management can be summed up in two words, wisdom and generosity. And what these three things do is they keep me generous first and they keep me wise second. And so I never get into financial trouble. I honor God with my wealth, with the first part of everything I get. I save second and he blesses the rest. All right, so I want to just leave you today with three challenges, okay? Now, you may not need all three of these. You may just need one of them. You may hate all three of them. It doesn't really matter to me, to be honest. I'm just going to give them to you. I think all three of them are, are wise, sound challenges from God's Word. You can take them, do whatever you want with them, like always. I, I don't have to answer for you. I don't have to answer for me, okay? So let me give you all three of them. Here's the first challenge, ready? I called it the tithing challenge. If you're not a tither, if you don't give God at least the first 10% of what you make through his church. That's the principle in the Bible, right? We've looked at it before. And if you think we're out to get your money, I said this in week one of the series, if you think we're out to get your money, I would just challenge you to take this challenge to a different church. I don't care, you can keep coming here if you want. Give your money to a different church. We're not after your money. God is after your heart. And he knows that where you put your money, there your heart will be also. Okay? So take the tithing challenge. For the next three months, give God the first 10% of every dollar you earn, every dollar you get. And if you get to the end of that three months and it's wrecked your life, or you think it's been a negative experience, or you think God hasn't blessed you with peace, come tell me I'll give it all back to you. I promise. We'll write you a check, give it back to you. We're not trying to get your money. We're trying to make you like Jesus. We're trying to convince you that God's way is the way. So take the challenge. Maybe you've never done that before. Start today. Three months. If it doesn't go well, come see me. I promise we won't announce it. We won't make a fool out of you. We won't like, call you out in church. We'll just give you a check back for whatever you gave. Okay? Challenge number two. I call it the offering challenge. Maybe you're here and you are a tither. Maybe you've been a tither for a long time. Now it's your time to be a kingdom builder. I want to challenge you to go home today, sit down with your spouse, pull out your budget, have a heart-to-heart with just you, right? Uh, talk to yourself, maybe. And, and just ask yourself, like, the question I shared last week that should start every year, that should start every budget discussion, that should start every financial decision you make, how much more can I leverage for Jesus? Can I, I'm giving God 10%. Can I give God 10% plus a dollar? Can I round my 10% up to the next dollar? to give Jesus an offering to? Can I give him an extra hundred every month? And the same thing applies. You come to me at the end of the three months, you're like, that was a mistake. I lost the house because I was giving Jesus some extra money. If that happens, come see me. We'll give you all your money back. You can get your house out of foreclosure, Right? But that won't happen. I've been around long enough. I've seen it long enough. I've practiced it long enough to know what's going to happen is God's going to bless you with exactly what he says he's going to bless you with, financial peace. That's what he's going to do. But but I I promise, we'll give it back to you. Challenge number three, you ready? Challenge number three, I called the heart-to-heart challenge. The heart-to-heart challenge. So these first two challenges, if you're honest and if I'm honest, when I hear these first two challenges, the tithing challenge, the offering challenge, they create a little bit of tension inside of us, don't they? If you were going to be honest, you'd be like, there's a little bit of tension in there, a little bit of worry, a little bit of frustration, maybe anger. I don't like those ideas. And so uh, if for whatever reason you looked at those first two challenges and you thought to yourself, "I, I can't do that. I can't do that. Okay, I just can't. Maybe you think I won't. I don't know, but <laughs> I can, but I won't. You know? But if you think I can't do the, I can't tithe, I can't give an offering. If you thought that, here's what I want you to do this week, the heart to heart challenge. Sit down, take out your phone or a piece of paper and either type out or write down exactly what's going through your head as the reason why you can't. Just write it down or type it in, whatever the reason. Now maybe you got like four reasons, I don't know. Whatever those reasons are, write them down, type them down, whatever they are, then just read them out loud, have a heart-to-heart with yourself, and just answer one question. You ready? Whatever those reasons are, do you think those reasons will still seem like good reasons one day when you're standing in front of the Lord telling Him why you didn't tithe, why you didn't give Him an offering, why He wasn't first in your finances? Do you think they'll still, that's it. I'm not going to ask you about it. You don't have to tell me what you think. Or, I'm just asking you to do it. Because I know there's tension that comes when you're thinking about, like, man, 10% of what I make. Oh, man, give him more than t-. Tension inside. I've felt that before. I know what it's like, right? Tension. I just want you to write down that tension. What is the tension? I won't have enough. I won't have enough. I just don't make enough to do that. I, if I do that, I won't be able to pay my bills. Whatever the tension is, write it down read it out loud to yourself, and then just answer honestly that question. When you stand in front of the Lord one day, 20 years from now, 60 years from now, 80 years from now, whatever it is, and he's like, why didn't you obey me in this one area? You're like, well, let me get my list, Lord, and you read the same list. Like, is it still going to seem like a good reason? Just answer that for yourself, okay? That's it. Three challenges, three practical steps you can take away from this series. We're not going to sing seven verses of just as I am, not gonna beg you to raise your hand or walk down the aisle, none of that stuff. Just are you gonna take God's word and follow it or are you gonna keep being your own God? Your choice, always your choice. That's how we preach. That's what the real gospel looks like. You can't force anybody into it. Can't twist their arm to do the right thing. We're giving you God's truth, begging you to accept his grace and let him love on you and then challenging you to walk out the door and put it into practice. Can I pray for you? Dear Heavenly Father, this is hard truth. This series is hard, God, because it it cuts down to what's deep inside of my heart, the greed, the greed that you're trying to cut out of me and replace with faith and trust and peace. And so, God, I pray that you would um, empower the people here today. Give them courage, the courage it'll take to walk out the door and not just hear the word, but do the word. Would you give them that kind of courage, God? Would you not let any of us rest easy until we line our lives up with your word, until we put you where you belong and keep the first things, the first things. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. What an amazing challenge from God's word for all of us. We hope you will start putting everything you've learned in this session into practice. And be sure to subscribe to the 3SC podcast so you'll never miss any new content. Thanks for listening.